Hey everyone, and welcome to Mind Body Green's beauty podcast, Clean Beauty School. I'm your host and beauty director, Alexandra Engler. So today we are going to be talking about a very important topic that is likely on a lot of our minds lately, sustainability and beauty's waste problem. This is not a fun topic. In fact, it is downright anxiety inducing. You know, we know that climate change is upon us and we are seeing the disastrous effects in real time. And it seems that with each new report that comes out, including the most recent IPCC report that painted a potentially very bleak future, you know, that anxiety gets even more so. Another reason it can feel so daunting is because so much of what needs to be done is at that higher level with governments and industry needing to step up and take charge. But it's important to realize that a big part of this also comes down to consumer demand. What we purchase and how we consume says volumes about our values. And so we all play a role and the beauty industry and consumer is included in that. We always talk about mindful beauty here, using just what you need, thinking critically about what you're quote unquote being sold, only buying from companies that align with your values and sticking to what actually serves you. And we think that's never been more important than now. And to help me with this, I reached out to Christy Dretman. She's an eco-justice advocate and sustainability expert who founded Brown Girl Grain, a content platform aimed to make this very hard and difficult topic digestible and easier to understand. So without further ado, Christy, welcome. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here. So I'm so excited to have this conversation. It is obviously a very important one uh, for many reasons, and it is particularly important in the beauty space because I know that we have a lot of work that we need to do within this industry, as do most industries, but beauty can be a particularly wasteful one. And so I am so excited to just have this conversation with you because I know it's also something that our listeners care about so deeply. But before we get into the, the majority of the discussion, I would just love if you could introduce yourself and tell me about your journey and how you became a sustainability advocate and expert. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Christy Drumman. I am based out here in California, soon will be on the East Coast, and I am the founder and creator of Brown Girl Green, which is a podcast and a media platform that is centered around Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I make digestible and creative and culturally relevant content to educate people about the modern day environmental issues of our time. And I would say that my journey really started off with me not really being exposed to many of these issues growing up in a small town. I was kind of, I guess you could say, sheltered from the world but just really didn't realize how many communities worldwide are and have been impacted by environmental injustice. And once I went to university and I studied environmental policy and city planning at UC Berkeley, I started really diving into these issues. And while I was diving into these issues, I realized that I didn't see people who really looked like me in these rooms or the books that I was reading related to advocating, you know, a climate just future. And so by the end of university, I realized that if I both cared about the environmental crises of our time, as well as caring about who was telling the stories about how we're going to build a green and eco-friendly future, then I wanted to make my own platform to talk about 
both of those intersections. And so that's why I created Brown Girl Green. That's how it emerged. And now I've been doing it for the past three or so years. And, you know, it started off as a podcast concept and then it has now transformed into blogs, videos, graphics, all sorts of different interactive content all through social media to try to educate as many people as I can about a variety of environmental issues going on in the world. So this is a beauty podcast, of course. So I do want to hear about your relationship with beauty and the beauty space. You know, do you have a connection to skincare, hair care, makeup, body care, whatever it is? Oh, yeah. Like it has layers for me. I would say like, (laughs) I would say that like beauty, I mean, just to go very deep, you know, from a young age, I had to learn what beauty was because I didn't fit the mold. I grew up with very dark skin with really frizzy, curly hair, and I didn't you know, dress the best. And I dealt with a lot of childhood bullying a lot because of my appearance. And I struggled a lot with my self-confidence, especially when, you know, I was in middle school and high school because I had really bad acne and I didn't know how to like take care of myself. And I did all these things to, you know, damage my hair by trying to force force it to be dyed and straightened and all these things. And you know, even in Filipino culture, you're taught that like darker skin is not is not beautiful. You're taught that lighter skin isn't even in Filipino culture. They sell whitening mm-hmm. creams just to make your mm-hmm. skin whiter. Mm-hmm. You, you're told you can't stay out in the sun for long periods of time. So I would just say that like my beauty journey has been an evolution of figuring out like how to feel beautiful. And that has been a process of decolonization of being able mm-hmm. to actually address well why have I been taught that I'm not beautiful and realizing that that was a microcosm of a much bigger system that oppresses and ultimately devalues uh, black indigenous and people of color in this society. And so Mm -hmm. I would say that like when it came to beauty products, it was very difficult for me to find even makeup that could even fit my skin tone for a really long time. And luckily, we now live in a society where that's evolved a ton due to really amazing, you know, change makers and visionaries of color who saw that there's gaps in the beauty industry to provide options for people like me. And um, I would say, especially in the sustainable beauty space, that's even more of a space that needs to shift in that direction where we can see both skincare that is not going to be full of toxic chemicals and ingredients, but also is inclusive and is focused on how to make women of color feel beautiful. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that that's been a journey of trying to find products and businesses and companies who can actually embody both of those values. And unfortunately, it's a smaller percentage than I would like to see out there. But I think I think it's evolving for sure. Yeah, absolutely agreed with everything you just said. And it really sets up the rest of this conversation nicely. I want to lay the groundwork for this conversation first. Um, You know, you mentioned environmental justice. And I, I, I would love it if you could just define that what that means and what that means to you just for our listeners who are maybe kind of new to this concept. That way, they'll know what we're talking about throughout this conversation. Totally. So environmental justice, just at a baseline, is the idea that everyone, regardless of your race, ethnicity, income status, gender, 
etc. deserves access to clean air, clean water, and healthy soil. Great, simple enough. I think that's something that we can all hopefully get behind. <laughs> but, <Yes. laughs> but let's see, you know, we'll get into the beauty space. The beauty industry absolutely has a sustainability problem. We know this. It's certainly a wasteful industry that uses ingredients that aren't always harvested sustainably. It uses packaging that either doesn't get recycled or is hard to recycle, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what are the biggest issues that you see when you look at the beauty industry? I mean, I definitely think disposability culture is like a huge thing because I feel like when it comes to plastic, I feel like when it comes to the food we eat and vitamins and maybe some things that people may view as essential items, maybe plastic, as much as I hate it, like maybe that those are the categories where it's some semi-warranted. But I feel like when it comes to beauty products, of course, I don't know all the science and the details of like how how makeup or how beauty products need to be stored because I know some people refrigerate products. They have to be stored at certain temperatures. And I don't know if plastic has benefits for that. But as far as I know... Mm, not usually. <laughs> okay, great. You know, thank you for explaining that because I, I don't know all the details on that. But other than that, I just view like beauty as, I don't want to say a luxury, but as a as this add-on item in your life to enhance your life and improve it. And I view it as a different category than something like a vitamin. And obviously mm. it's vitamins for your skin and things like that. People could argue that. But at the same time, like, I think it's the one industry, you know, in addition to the fashion industry that could do so much more when it comes to its packaging, its sourcing of materials, it's programs on what happens to the products after they are disposed mm. of. I just feel like there's no real, like, cir like even a, an attempt to become more circular in the beauty industry. It's very focused on disposability culture. So I want to take a moment to provide context to the scope of the problem that is disposability culture. I gathered together a few stats that might help paint the picture of how many beauty products we toss. Every year, 120 billion cosmetic products are produced. Now keep that in mind when I say this next step. 80% of purchased products aren't fully used. Now of those 120 billion cosmetic products, many, many, many of those are housed in virgin plastic. Reports show that only 9% of all plastic products are actually recycled. You can even see that in like basic sheet masks, you know, that mm. you buy at the store. Like we live in a culture now where it's like, okay, I'm going to use this one singular item just so I can look cute for one night. And then I'm going to throw it out until there's the next night. And then I'm just going to buy another one and keep throwing out these items. So it's not as focused on like how long the product is going to last you. I, I love, you know, bringing up this disposability culture just because it is almost inherent in the beauty culture that we live in now, because it's always just about what's new and what's next. And it's always about what, and it's yeah. so trend driven that it's hard yes. to imagine, you know, crafting a culture that isn't driven on buying things just to throw them away, right? Yeah. Completely. And I, and I think that with these trends, like there's so much, like I said, when we were talking about my relationship with beauty, like 
there's a lot of pressure, especially young women have to live up to, Mm -hmm. to be socially accepted or to be taken seriously. And if you're not having maybe those certain name brand products or you're not using certain things to enhance the way you look, then you may be rejected by the current society that we live in, which is really unfortunate, but that that's some of what we have to contend with for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a a problem that runs throughout every aspect of beauty. You know, it starts with the culture, but it also goes into the industry side and it goes into the user behavior side. You know, it's something that really it um, it almost like rots the whole culture. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think it it takes away from your ability to like enjoy the things that you own for a long period of time and be mm, able to like mm-hmm. find value in that. You know, I I remember when I was like really young. This is so random, but maybe this will make in the podcast. Maybe you will, maybe you'll cut this out later. But <laughs> I remember when I was younger and I used to love this Nickelodeon show called As I Told by As Told by Ginger. And there's this episode Mm -hmm. where the main character, her mom wouldn't allow her to like buy beauty products. So she had to like look up how to make makeup out of like berries Mm. and like natural products. And it was just so funny funny because, you know, she was able to pull it off. But then it was like everyone was like, oh, like, how did you how'd you make that happen? And then girls were getting rashes. It was like a whole thing. But anyways, I just bring that up to just say that like my mom never let me wear makeup as a kid or as a young person. And I, and I had experienced like a lot of like just social rejection and not being treated the same because I, I didn't use certain products. So just to bring up that it's the trend culture and disposability, like it's, yeah, they're almost like you can't pull them apart by any means. Yeah. Yeah, they're really like ingrained in each other. Obviously, a big part of this disposability culture is has to do with packaging. You know, you've already mentioned the issues with, you know, virgin plastic and and the concerns that come around that. What in your in your research, in your opinion, you know, what are the best types of packaging materials in terms of sustainability? Like what should people be looking for? Yeah, so I mean, there's not like perfect plastic because obviously there's some companies that are now doing things like ocean bound plastic which basically means like plastic that was gonna go to the ocean instead gets remade Mm. into bottles so it's kind of like this cycle where you're taking plastic that otherwise would go to like garbage and then be able to like remake that into the plastic so i mean yeah that's like baseline if you can get products that have post-consumer recycled plastic, that's like really baseline. But unfortunately, even if you buy products that have that, it's not a real solution because if you live in an area that doesn't really actually recycle that type of plastic, it is just going to end up in the trash. So I would more so recommend looking into companies now that are focused on what's called a circular approach or a circular economy. And what that essentially means is that they care about like how the packaging is both like sourced and made right when you're like you know when you're making the product to when the consumer consumes it to where it ends up after the consumer is done using it and so you would want a product that um, comes from a company that cares about that whole process and does what's called like cradle to cradle Mm -hmm. so basically whatever is used in 
whatever gets consumed, that end product would go back into the beginning of the production cycle for a new product. So there's there's companies like that if you look that up. Also, a company that I work with personally is called Eva NYC. Obviously, mm. they're a hair care company, but they just, you know, they were using plastic for a long time. And this year they partnered with a company uh, called TerraCycle and they now have like a closed loop system where if you buy their products now, like their hair care products, you can actually put it in your curbside recycling and it gets sent back to them to recycle those materials, which is really cool. So yeah, I definitely we love TerraCycle around here. Yeah, yeah. So I would check out TerraCycle, see the brands that they partner with. I know Ulta also is launching something similar like that, partnering with Loop and TerraCycle. Like there, there's a few options where you can look into like some package deals where, you know, you might get a subscription and then get certain beauty products for a month. But like instead of it being in plastic packaging, you can send it back and then they'll actually like refill it. So there's some brands and companies that are doing that now. So that way you're both forming like a long-term relationship with that brand, but also like reducing your waste in the process yeah. too. I'm curious, obviously that that part was about, you know, plastics, but do you have thoughts on other types of materials like aluminum or glass? You know, are there yeah, concerns yeah. that you see around those? So I, I kind of jumped there with the Eva NYC. I met, I'm meant to mention they use plastic, but now they use aluminum for sure. their their hair care products. And you can, that's why they're recyclable. So the thing with aluminum is, and, and that's another thing, like aluminum is definitely far superior to plastic and glass just because it technically in theory is infinitely recyclable, but mm -hmm. that still uses energy. It still consumes resources. It's still not perfect because at the end of the day, it's still not challenging disposability culture. But in, co in comparison of the footprint aluminum has compared to plastic or glass, like it's way smaller. Like, so I'd highly recommend trying to find products that are in like aluminum. Glass is a little bit better, but again, you would want to find a company that uses glass, but that it's like refillable or like you could send it back. And then if nothing else, like find these like plastic items, but that use post-consumer recycled plastic. Yeah. I think the aluminum part of this conversation has become really interesting. And I've been seeing brands more and more start moving towards aluminum, which I find yeah. really exciting. You know, I think for so long people were like, oh, aluminum isn't as like, oh, we use aluminum for other stuff. That's like, you know, for more for the kitchen or, you know, yeah. I don't know. There was just this hesitancy about using aluminum for beauty products yeah. because they thought the consumer wouldn't get on board with it. But I really think that's changing, right? Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I personally think that aluminum is way more durable than plastic. Sure. Um, it doesn't chip. It doesn't break as easily. And like I said, like it's so easy to recycle compared to plastic. And yeah, and it's also easier to clean out for yeah. sure compared to a plastic bottle you're trying to recycle for sure. So when I think about sustainability solutions for my own personal way to view it, I do, you know, short term and long term. Just I think that's the way that I grapple with it in my head. You know, what can what can I as a consumer, as an editor, as a human being do today that will help the problem versus, you know, what do I need long term? You know? So with that viewpoint in mind and that understanding in mind, you know, what 
What are your more immediate steps that you advise people to take today to better their beauty habits? Do you have things that you, you tell people like, listen, you got to start doing this now. And it's a small step that they can easily digest. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to like take inventory of like knowing the ingredients that actually go into your beauty products. I think it's important to like do research into that just for your own sake of like knowing what you're putting into or onto your body. I know a lot of people do that now or a lot more health conscious. So maybe that's not as much of a concern, but some people don't. So I'd recommend don't already do that to just like understand what these different chemicals with these long names are see if there's been any research or recalls on these products or those Mm -hmm. types of ingredients so you know if like it's something that you should or shouldn't be using so i think that's step one i would say another important thing is to buy products that are going to last you a long time so if you are going to keep buying maybe a plastic item my beauty hack that i always tell people is to buy castile soap because it just lasts such a long time Mm, they can use it for so many things like washing your face body wash washing your hair like there's so many uses to it and there are a lot of stores like zero waste shops and other spots where like if you buy a gallon bottle of that you can refill so if you're going to stay with plastic try to buy bottles that are like at least a really big size so that way you're just using it for a long time and like not going to like buy another one for at least a few months so yeah that's my big thing if maybe you can't afford like the more expensive aluminum bottle companies or things like that but then I would also say with like just like don't just like follow a trend really make sure that you take an inventory of the things that you own and like only buy what you feel like you truly need or like want and that you know that you're going to use for a long time not just a one-time use so like instead of buying those like sheet masks that are super disposable buy a clay mask that comes in a jar or make your own face mask I would also say like when it comes to like buying certain products like in the long term being able to find those like refillable stores refillable brands I think is key if you're able to make a bigger investment down the line Yeah, I think that's all very easy and very digestible. And it's also just a very mindful way to look at beauty. You know, not only is that helping the planet, but I also think it's just helping your own psyche. You know, it's it's exhausting to keep on. Yeah, I was just going (laughs) to say it's like really stressful to just like have so many items in your cabinet. It's like it's important to just like be like, okay, I don't actually even use all of these on a day-to-day basis. Like it's important to just like observe what do I actually use on a day-to-day basis? What could I get rid of? What do I actually need? So you just don't keep falling into this pit of like endless consumerism. Yeah. And like what you actually enjoy. Because I feel like sometimes, and I'm I'm much better about this now, but you know, when I, when I was first started being a beauty editor, I was trying so much stuff because it was a little bit of part of my job, but it was also, you know, I was just, I was I was part of that consumer culture and you stop enjoying the stuff as much. So anyway, to your point, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a good way to live regardless if you have, if you're trying to be um, better for the planet. But this, the second part of this conversation has to do with the long-term needs, right? And you know, what, what should people be thinking about in terms of creating a better beauty industry long-term. We've obviously already talked about disposable culture and consumer culture. And obviously that is a, a 
a train of thought that is, you know, insidious through all, all aspects of this. But are there other things that people need to be paying attention to in terms of long-term changes? You know, yeah. things that they maybe can't change right now, but hopefully down the line, a company might be able to change that or, you know, the government might be able to do something. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier about this IPCC report that just got released that's talking about climate change and kind of the the hill of problems that we are running into in the next few decades. Okay, the IPCC report. I encourage you to go look it up and read up on related news articles about it. If you have not already, it is worth digesting the information to understand where we are at. After you do that, I also encourage you to read up on a story that our sustainability editor here at MindBodyGreen, Emma Lowe, wrote about turning eco-anxiety into action. As Emma writes in the story, 234 volunteer scientists sifted through over 14,000 studies and came to a loud and clear conclusion. We are heading down a dangerous path, and if we don't radically reduce our emissions, the results will be catastrophic. The report contextualizes the widespread wildfires, severe droughts, and extreme storms happening around the world as part of the larger climate puzzle and warns us without immediate action, they will likely get worse. But in the story, she also shares this quote from writer Melissa Olivardo Sierra. A crisis has a way of clarifying things and moving us to act. So I say, reach out to organizations, talk to friends and neighbors, make this situation yours. We did this to our planet and we need to own it in order to change it. And a big part of that is just reducing emissions across industries. And the beauty industry is a very big worldwide polluter because of its reliance on fossil fuels. And a lot of these factories where a lot of these beauty and cosmetic products are being produced, not only just rely on unethical labor, but also rely on burning dirty energy. And so in the long term, we need people who are really demanding that beauty companies run their factories and operations off of renewable energy to be able to reduce their carbon emissions. Because currently the footprint of the beauty industry is humongous. I don't have the numbers on me right now, but I know that it's pretty pretty up there. Um, yeah. It definitely and, is. We'll we'll make sure to put that in the, the show notes at the end for, yeah, for everybody. And I think that like that's something in general everyone needs to start shifting the conversation towards. Like, how are companies polluting the earth? And what is their role in that? And how have they not been held accountable to that? And similarly with like their labor practices when it comes to human rights. Like, how are these businesses being able to make billions and billions of dollars off the backs of exploited workers? So I think both of those things in the long term need to be prioritized when it comes to like purchasing your beauty products. And I'm sure people in your audience care about ethical beauty and care about, you know, buying from companies that do care about fair trade, do care about ethical sourcing. But at the same time, like you have to think about is this company, does this company actually have goals to reduce their emissions in the next few decades? And if they don't, why are you purchasing from them? Yeah, this kind of gets into this this next thing that I wanted to ask you about. And it's a, this debate that comes up a lot in sustainability. It, and it has to do with the accountability of the industry and government versus the individual. And 
you know, I think most people kind of have come together and agree that obviously government and industry holds a lion's share of the blame, right? Yes. Yeah. But how much pressure then do we put on them versus the individual? And 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 is the individual part of this discussion too? Because you know, I while industry and government does so much of the damage. There's also, there's also the individual on some level yeah. consuming all of it and, yeah. and, and creating that, that demand. So do you have an answer? Do you have thoughts on that? I'm sure you grapple with this quite a bit. It's, yes. it's something that I, that I haven't fully been able to wrap my head around. Yes. I mean, I think that this is like the ultimate question that always comes up in every conversation related to environmental issues, because it's like at the end of the day, like who's being held accountable. But I think at the same time, like it's about the culture that we create as well, because I think a lot of humanity is very habitual. And I think that if you see other people saying, hey, this thing's actually not cool anymore, then people are going to say, oh, that's not cool anymore. And I don't think there's enough of that when it comes to living sustainably. Because look, I mean, we have evidence. We have case studies with how fast fashion and this whole disposability culture has existed. That has existed because everyone has kind of collectively agreed that that's how the society should run. Like it is embedded in the culture. And yes, at the end of the day, like companies at the source are going to have to change things and all the blame shouldn't be on consumers. But consumers do have a responsibility to challenge the culture that we live in and say, hey, why is it like this? Hey, why why are we okay with this? Hey, why is that company doing that? And sometimes, you know, you can ask those questions and then end up feeling powerless because then you're like, okay, I can ask those questions, but then this company is not going to care what I have to say. But if there's enough people who are like, this is the culture that we're creating and we're saying that these things aren't cool anymore and we educate enough people to say, hey, that actually makes sense why that's not cool anymore. I think industry will listen because that's kind of how the market works from what I know yeah. from very basic economics. So <laughs> yeah, so I would say that that is the responsibility of the consumer. And I think some people get lazy and get a little too comfortable when it comes to just blaming it on industry and corporations. But that's not to say like people that are just struggling to get data. That's, a, that's another thing, right? There's different tiers. Sure of access accessibility for this. So if you're someone who's just like trying to get by day to day, you're you barely have the funds to even like support yourself and you just want something like to make you feel good and you don't want to think about those things. I don't think that this is to blame you. But I would say that like for those of us who have money, education, access, privilege, people we can contact, avenues of advocacy, those people need to leverage that a bit more for sure and not just accept yeah. the status quo. Yeah. You know, I'm curious just to follow up to this is how do you talk <laughs> this is a basic question, but like how do you talk to the people in your life about this stuff to be like yeah. I, you know, I just I I'm trying to like imagine I, how do you tell somebody like oh god, you're you're shopping too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had a had I've had to have conversations with my family where I'm like, you don't need to buy that. You already have one of those things. Or like, you already have an item like that. Or ask them, I was like, like, do you really need this? 
Yeah. And it's not to shame them, but it's just to have them take inventory. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I actually do have like two of those things. Maybe I don't actually need it. Just like a moment of awareness. It's not about saying it in a condescending tone. It's just about like inquiry. It's a fine line between the two yeah. things. But I would say some people are really stubborn. Like, again, like I'd say talking to my family and friends who like aren't really in this space, like they can be really stubborn but like for instance like my dad this is in the beauty industry but this is just like with plastic in general like for the longest time he was so stubborn around buying plastic water bottles and the other day mostly because I was able to figure out kind of a persuasive point around health and the need to drink a gallon of water a day he was finally convinced to like that I could buy him a reusable like plastic not plastic like reusable like gallon water bottle that he could just keep reusing so he doesn't have to ever like purchase those things again. And I was surprised that that of all things was what convinced him. But it's like interesting, like you have to explore and like listen to your friends and family's concerns. Is there concern money? Is there concern health reasons? Is there concern looking cute? And depending on like what the push and pull factor is there, then you craft your message or your inquiry to them about their spending habits or what they're purchasing or how they're living their lives in a way that doesn't come off as judgmental because you are showing that you care about their what they prioritize in their life, if that makes sense. It does. And it's it so rings true because, you know, there are so many avenues into the sustainability conversation. And so, you know, leverage all of those avenues to your advantage. I love that piece of advice. I know that in your work, you know, you talk about the intersection of sustainability and diversity. You know, it's it's kind of the core of eco-justice. And I know so many of the problems we we are facing today, you know, they could have been addressed had we just listened to a more diverse perspective. You know, we know this to be true. And I and I think this rings true in the beauty industry. Too. Had we just paid attention to a more diverse thought of what the beauty industry should look like and what beauty standards should be and how we create this culture, we wouldn't necessarily be in this situation or as dire of a situation. And I just want to talk about this a little bit further because I know this is something that, you know, you are so educated on. How have they failed us by not doing this? And like, how do we push them to be better? Yeah, I would just say that like, I would say that they've just failed us in the ways in which like they have a huge opportunity to shift the culture. Like they, they like. I hate to like keep conflating beauty industry and fashion industry, but I just I've kind well, of I seen think them. that they go together pretty nicely because they have like, they have a lot yeah, of lot yeah of ethos and et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Like I just feel like these companies have such a huge opportunity to shift the conversation, to make these things so much more easy and accessible to more people because they actually do have the finances to get certified, to be able to actually like modify their factories, to be able to like actually improve their packaging and do that kind of research and innovation that these way, way, way smaller sustainable companies are doing. And so I feel like the beauty industry is failing society by not taking advantage of the opportunity to exhibit really strong leadership in this space and to be able to be leaders into a world where people can feel um, the best about themselves, not just for what they're putting on their skin, but the impact that they're making on the environment. I just don't understand why it's so difficult for them to like not implement that. Sure. 
And I guess what I was also like wanted to bring up the conversation is just the ways in which, to your point, like these smaller companies have been doing it better. And these smaller companies who are fronted by women of color, you know, women or men or any gender of different backgrounds. And so, you know, and it's, and it's all of a sudden, big beauty is starting to realize that, oh, God, these other these, these other companies, these, these individuals were, were telling us the whole time that there, there are better ways of doing this. And so it's just kind of like, I don't know, it seems like it's coming to a head. And like, yeah, it's frustrating to watch. I just don't want to turn into this like, greenwashing thing where they catch on that, oh, sustainability is now profitable. So we're going to use this language of like the good stuff we're doing, stealing those concepts from people that actually are doing the work. And then it's just like a half-assed approach, you know? So that's my fear. Yeah. Let's talk about greenwashing. We haven't necessarily like touched on this quite yet. You know, what are some of the more egregious things that you see in the greenwashing conversation? I think a big thing is just seeing products that are labeled as like being green just because it's made out of like post-consumer recycled plastic. Yes, okay, that's a good thing that like they're reducing some of the plastic, but it doesn't make it an inherently green product when at the end of the day, if you don't have recycling in where you live, it's just going to end up in the trash. That's just the facts, you know? But also like they'll put green on the bottle. They'll say like, oh, it's all all natural is always the thing. But then you read the ingredients on the back of the bottle and most of the time they're artificial ingredients. And so anyways, I would just say that like greenwashing is essentially just this idea where like companies know saying something is environmentally friendly as an ethos is more profitable of a product. But at the end of the day, if you don't do your research, it's probably just a scam. Sure. You know, one of the things that I think that I think gets missed in this conversation is that climate change has real effects on the body. It's like, I think that we have kind of divorced ourselves from, from the climate change conversation and the planet, because, you know, we keep on saying, oh, this is changing the planet. This is changing the planet. And we don't necessarily acknowledge the fact that we are part of the planet and it's climate change is affecting our bodies in real time. And, you know, it, it, it does have effects on, on our function, you know, in our bodies. And I just want to ask you about this, you know, from your research, from the people that you talk to, what are some ways that the climate crisis is affecting is affecting us? Yeah, I mean, it varies from different communities and neighborhoods. But I mean, I actually have a blog on my website, browngirlgreen.org, that specifically talks about PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. that impacts people after natural disaster hits. And so I had this amazing young woman who had been impacted by Hurricane Katrina. And she wrote about how even to this day, I mean, she was a little girl when Hurricane Katrina hit. Now, you know, she's all grown up, but like, she'll still get nightmares thinking about that disaster yeah. like it's in her body. And that's just like one example of so many different ways like physiological impacts environmental changes have on our bodies for those of us who are not used to it being this hot in july and august something as simple as that (laughs) ending up like getting sick getting seasonal allergies that you never used to get before experiencing your throat getting dry coughing more often just like having to buy clothes you never had to buy before because your body is responding in weird ways to the the climate changing. Also, just like on a baseline, like more vectors of disease, like mosquitoes and different yeah. insects being able to 
increase in population because now they have a nice warm humid climate to exist in in certain areas that they never had before. So we are talking about climate changes and how it affects us on a human level. Like I said, I think it's very common for us to talk about how we are harming the planet without fully putting into context that we are the planet. We live on this planet. The planet is us. So like it or not, environmental changes can and will affect your overall health, including your skin. We've already seen this happening. The increased temperatures may be contributing to an increase in skin cancers as ultraviolet radiation is becoming stronger. Additionally, changes in weather and the biodiversity of the earth may be making our skin more sensitive and contributing to the rise in sun skin diseases. I put these studies in the show notes if you want to check them out. There's so many things that are happening just like on a physiological level, but even more so like with this report that just came out, like there's now fears about really huge worldwide food inequality and food apartheid across the world in different regions. And that's going to impact frontline communities in the global South, in areas like Asia, where people are going to now have to worry about their crops failing and are going to have to deal with starvation. And there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot that this is going to do and continues to do to a lot of people. So I would just say that like for, for people who are feeling that, you know, climate anxiety in your body right now, as I am and so many others are, you really need to like take care of yourself. And something I recently discovered was the practice of forest bathing, which was invented in Japan and was prescribed to people in Japan as a way to deal with the anxiety of their just overworking themselves. And I did it um, about a week or so ago when I was on, on my vacation with a certified instructor. And it just literally like helped me retap everything back in like all this tension and like continual tension I felt in my body it just completely like washed away so you need to like find some sort of practice like that to be able to recalibrate your body because if you're always in a state of panic mode eventually you're just going to become desensitized and apathetic yeah. and numb even to these things and we can't we can't have people become numb because that's where that, that's the most disastrous part of it. So I would say whether it means going to your mental health practitioner, getting out in nature in a way that's like totally offline, off your phone, even maybe spending time by yourself, like not even with other people, just to like recenter yourself. It's so, so important. So that absolutely blended perfectly with what I wanted to chat about, you know, calming yourself when you get overwhelmed. You just mentioned, you know, that you recently tried forest bathing and, you know, you, you gave the advice to visit a mental health practitioner. And I just wanted to follow up with this is that this is probably the first time for a lot of people who are feeling this environmental anxiety. Yeah. Are you, with the people that you talk to and the people that you come into contact with is, are you getting that sense as well? Like, are you seeing yeah. people who are really dealing with this in real time and for the first time? I would say that like, it's a variety. So like, okay. I, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of years now. And so I've seen people who have been, yeah, super anxious about climate impacts for a long time. We're kind of trying to ring the alarm for a really long time and no one was listening to them until recently. So I've seen like that. And then I've seen people who are just like, especially young people who are like, I'm really scared and 
this is the first time I'm really learning about this. Like, am I, do I even have a future? And yeah. And then there's those of us that are like in the in-between that see both of those worlds and are very focused on action to try to address our climate anxiety, but that can lead to burnout. So there's a, there's a spectrum of how different people are coping with this in real time for sure. So we covered a lot of ground today and I think a lot of people got a ton of tips in which, you know, they can, they can start practicing immediately and a lot of thoughtful ways that they can think long-term about the culture that we've created. But final question, and I ask this almost all my guests is (laughs) how, how do you take care of yourself? You know, how do you take care of your skin and your body? And I'm, I'm interested as, as somebody who is a sustainability expert, you know, how, how does wellness and beauty look to you day to day? You know, a lot of it's had to be like coming back to myself because I get so invested in this. And then I'm like, oh, I'm burnt out. I should not do mm-hmm. that to myself. So it's been a it's a been a journey. I try to not say that it's perfect because I with the hopes of showing people that it's a continuous process. It, you don't just get it right away. I would say the things that I'm practicing now is making sure that I'm at least in some sort of natural space at least once a week. But I think, you know, I'm in the process of moving. Once I do move and get more settled, I plan to do that two or even three times a week, kind of like working out, but like really just doing a nature immersion as part of just like maintaining my sanity, whether that be like just like sitting outside on grass and doing this practice called earthing, where you're just like literally barefoot in grass really helps me a lot, even if it's at a nearby park. But then also just like I, I, do a daily meditation before I go to sleep, just to deal with like night anxiety. I've now been taking care of my body by like really doing a lot of research into like my diet and what I'm eating and what I'm putting into my body, being able to find the balance of that while also being mindful of like my own carbon footprint with what I'm eating. And then I would say the last thing has just been spending more time with like the people who ground me because sometimes like you said you get so caught in a bubble and as much as that is an important support system to have when it comes to the work that you have it's also important to spend time with people who like don't necessarily do this kind of work but who care about you and love you and are invested in you i've noticed that like being able to be in a space where i just get to like bring my whole self into a space i think that has also been a practice of self care to like share those experiences with my friends and family that don't necessarily come from this space. Sure. So yeah. Well, I think that is all beautiful. And I, I so appreciate you taking the time to chat about this today. And I think a lot of people are, you know, they can walk away from this episode with real tangible advice, like I said, which is really important because we have a, we have a lot of work to do. So totally. thank you so much for taking your time. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for having me. Hey guys, just popping back in here to say thanks for joining us this week at Clean Beauty School. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you're looking for more beauty content or just wellness content in general, don't forget to check out our website, mindbodygreen.com, our Instagram, mindbodygreen, and of course, our parent podcast, the Mind Body Green Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks again. See you next week.